As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, my, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. And we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would speak to us, to our hearts, and to our lives, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Psalms 42 and 43, as, as you'll notice, they're at the start of the second book of Psalms. As the title shows, these are not written by David, but they're written by the sons of Korah, who were temple musicians. And they're often looked at together. Uh, there's no separate title, as you'll see, for Psalm 43, and you'll have seen there's a sort of refrain. The last verse of Psalm 43 comes twice in Psalm 42. As you know, we're doing this little series on prayer, and these two psalms help us to see another aspect of prayer. The psalm, is, as Matt has already said, is described as a psalm of lament. Few of the verses in the psalm are addressed to God 
in what we'd sort of normally think of as prayer, uh, asking God for things. Instead, you'll have noticed that much of the psalm is made up of the, of the psalmist, the writer of the psalm, expressing grief and sorrow before God. If he is asking, he's asking why. Verse 5, why? Verse 9, why? Verse 11, why? Psalm 43, verse 2, why? Psalm 43, verse 5, why? Some days we get, remember rain? Some days we get um, clouds, don't we? Uh, and then a dark clouds, and then a band of rain comes through. And then after that, the sun comes out and it's all sweetness and light. That's not the picture here. The writer of this psalm isn't going on a straight line. He hasn't sort of got a problem, turned to God, got it all sorted, and now is all sweetness and light. The picture here is, is of those other days when the clouds are just swirling around and, and rain is in the air the whole time. This is a psalm that's full of persistent, recurring trouble. We've got two main headings this morning, and if you're worried, the first is by far and away the longest. The psalmist's life. Uh, by psalmist, what I mean is the writer of the psalm. And there are two, uh, as we read the psalm, it seems that there are two main threads that run through the psalmist's life. And the first is that he is a cast-down soul. Four times in these two psalms, the writer describes himself as being cast down depressed in low spirits. So verse 5 of, of Psalm 42, why are you cast down? Verse 6, my soul is cast down. Verse 11, why cast down? And then 43 verse 5, why cast down? The word cast down means sort of sunken. It's, uh, it's used of a hollow in the ground. And our writer is sunk. He is depressed. He's in turmoil, verse 5, all unsettled, churned up inside. Doesn't sleep. And when he lies down, his anxious thoughts trouble him. When he uses the word soul here, uh, he doesn't just mean the sort of non-material part of him as opposed to, you know, soul as opposed to body. We get the, the feeling, the sense from the psalm when he's talking about the soul, he, he means the whole of him. And these two psalms, they're the cry of someone whose whole person is struggling, who's really low. Why is he like this? Why is he, why is he cast down? Well, the psalm gives some clues. He's experiencing a number of problems, problems that are, that are real, that he's finding pretty much overwhelming. So verse 3, he's got some enemies, they, and that's the same people, I guess, as verse 10, his adversaries, they are saying to him, where is your God? So something's clearly not going right for him, and his enemies are effectively saying, look, I, well, I thought you were one of God's people. Well, God seems to have given up on you, doesn't he? Uh, verse 4, well, he's got some memories. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
how I would go with the throng, lead them in procession to the house of God. But his memories may not be helping. He's looking back and he's remembering how in Jerusalem he was a temple singer, possibly leading the worship in Jerusalem. And a phrase that could sum that up would be, things used to be so much better. And then verse 6, actually we've got a map, I think, coming up, that he's miles away from the house of God and from God's people. He describes himself as being in the land of Jordan and Hermon in verse 6. And there's a little map up here. I was trying to work out where, where Hermon and, and Jordan were. And Jordan is the river that runs all the way down, obviously. But what I hadn't realized is that the source of the River Jordan is at Mount Hermon, which is right up the north there. And I think I'm right that apart from being at Sidon, which is probably yeah, just right up the top there on the left-hand side, you can hardly see. I think apart from being at Sidon, it's almost impossible to be anywhere in the Promised Land further away from Jerusalem than at Mount Hermon. What's the point? He feels so far away from God and where God lives. Is he there literally or is it metaphorically? We're not sure. But whatever it is for him, it's real. He feels far away from God and his house. Verse 7, more problems. He's just swamped, isn't he? All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. These aren't the refreshing waters that the, that the deer was looking for to sort of lap up in, in a nice gentle pool. These are the, the waters in the Bible that are often the pictures of chaos and disorder. 43 verse 1, he's got a lot of problems, hasn't he? 43 verse 1, he's facing injustice from the deceitful and unjust man. Is it one particular person he's got in mind? Well, we're not sure again. But he's clearly on the receiving end of some injustice of some sort. This is one cast-down soul. Now, we might be asking, is it because of sin that he's in this state? A while ago, we were looking, if you remember, at the book of James. And towards the end of the book of James, we were looking at that possible link between sickness and suffering and sin. Is that the problem here? Well, it's possible, but it doesn't seem like it. This isn't a sort of Psalm 119, I can't remember which verse, but, but before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. There doesn't seem to be any implication of sin in this passage. We might be asking, well, is he just lacking faith? You know, if he, if he trusted God a little bit more, then Surely he wouldn't be feeling like this. Well, again, we don't get that from him. His cries to God are from the heart. He's not some sort of armchair critic standing back intellectually sort of wondering why God allows suffering. This is the song of a believer, isn't it? Verse 2, my soul is thirsting for God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's the song of someone who knows that only God is able to satisfy. Well, as we look at him, I, I guess there are elements of his experience that many of us can relate to. Some of us are maybe facing opposition for our faith. Maybe there's sadness as we look back. We look back at how our 
family or ourselves or our circumstances used to be so much different. Things used to be so much better. Maybe we've got that feeling or had that feeling of just being swamped. Maybe a victim of injustice. Worst of all, maybe feeling that God is distant. There are very few of us, I suspect, in here this morning who've not asked at some point, where is our God? Very few of us who've not been cast down, who sort of felt rejected by God. There are very few of us who, who won't have asked at some point, if this is happening to me, God, aren't you there? Well, don't you care? So what can we learn from the writer of this psalm? How is this going to help me next week, next month, when I'm feeling low? Maybe I've never been this low, but one day I might be. How does the psalmist help? Well, he helps, because I think he teaches us one big lesson about prayer, about coming before God. And he teaches us, I think, that when we pray, we don't have to pretend. Children love to play, let's pretend. Well, this man is not going to play, let's pretend. All is not well, and he's not going to pretend that it is. He's not okay, and he's not going to hide it from God. He tells God exactly how he feels, and he's given us words to, so that we can do the same. I wonder if sometimes, as Christians, we feel guilty when we're struggling, because we think that we shouldn't be struggling. Maybe adults, maybe we're children in a Christian family. Maybe we've heard it said or even said to ourselves, well, I'm a Christian. I, Christians can't get depressed. Well, we need to learn from this man. He's depressed. He's a cast-down soul. He feels miles from God. But he doesn't pretend. He cries out to God as he is. And we're to do the same. Whether we're okay, whether we're not okay. Uh, one book that uh, I was looking at on these psalms has the title, It's Okay to Be Not Okay. And it's a fairly obvious thing to say, and here's the most obvious thing of this morning, is that God knows exactly how we feel. We don't need to pretend. As probably came across as Yasmin was reading this, this psalm, it's very much the cry of an individual, isn't it? And often pain and suffering are very private. And here we have one man in real trouble. But these psalms are written for God's people. And they're corporate. They're songs that are to be said or sung together. Now, I'm struggling to know how to express this. So apologies if this comes out so slightly clumsily. But because we don't need to pretend to God... If we're going to pray this sort of prayer together, then, then maybe this is an area where, maybe this can be a place where we don't need to pretend to each other. Without meaning to, I wonder if as Christians, we can give the impression that Christians are the sorted ones. That the church is, is just a place for the happy. And of course, in some ways it's, all, it's natural that, that we give that impression because when we come, we have so much to be glad and cheerful and joyful about. But if I'm struggling, 
I could be in danger of feeling that this isn't the place for me. I look at all the happy, smiling, successful people, and I, and I struggle because I'm not okay. Somebody was writing about their experience of church, not this church. And she said this, I wish there was a space in the church for our failures. I wish there was a place where I could be allowed to be broken, where I wouldn't need to hide if I failed. Someone else, again, not in this church, who was struggling, they said that the only part of the morning service that meant anything to them was the bit in the prayers where someone prayed for suffering people. The rest was for happy people. Well, as I said, the words in this psalm are for us as individuals, but also for us together to express griefs and sorrow to God. And maybe we need to think a bit more about how we can do that, how we can help each other. Perhaps it starts with, with just one or two praying together. Uh, Imagine you're on the welcome team, and next week it's 10.25, and the writer of this psalm walks through the front door. And you're on the welcome team, and quite right, big smile on your face, you say, welcome, how are you? I wonder what he would say. I think he'd say, I feel awful. I feel miles from God. Maybe, maybe, maybe he might have said, well... Would you pray with me? And wouldn't it be something if, if us together could be increasingly, this could be a place increasingly where, when we're struggling, we feel we can come just as we are, okay or not okay, where we don't feel we need to pretend. It doesn't mean I have to come and broad, come up to the front and broadcast my feelings to everybody. But it would be good to know, wouldn't it, that when I come, low as I am, there might be somebody to whom I can quietly say, do you know I feel low? Would you pray with me? This is one cast down soul. That was the longest. Second element in the psalmist's life. He holds on to truths. The psalmist knows truths about God which he holds on to. I wonder if you ever talk to yourself I was in this kitchen this morning, and, uh, and Nikki said, oh, beg your pardon? Thought I was on my own. All I'd said was, I think I'll have marmalade this morning. <laughs> Obviously, not very loudly. Anyway, apparently I'm normal, because according to the BBC Science magazine, nearly everybody does it, including the writer of this psalm. Three times, the writer of this psalm specifically speaks to himself. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Same again, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Chapter 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down? Here's a question. Given the choice, would you rather listen to yourself or talk to yourself? The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching on verse 5, I went to his accent, said this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I think the writer might agree. What does the writer say to himself? Although he speaks to himself specifically in those three verses, all through the psalm, 
He is reminding himself of truths about God that he knows. Just trace them through. Verse 2. He knows that God is the living God. Verse 5. He knows that God is the one he's to put his hope in, that God is his salvation. Verse 6. He knows that God is his God. Not a God or one God, but his God. Verse 8. He knows that God is a God of steadfast love, that he's a God who he can pray to. Verse 9, that God is his rock. 43 verse 2, God is the one he takes refuge in. 43 verse 3, that God is the one who speaks truth. Verse 4, that God is his exceeding joy. These are the truths about God that the writer of this psalm holds on to. Each of them, a wonderful truth to hang on to. And that's his second thread that runs through his life. And the point is, I think, that the psalmist, the writer of this psalm, has both of those threads holding on at the same time. As I said earlier, some people disagree, but, but I'm not sure that I think this psalm, I don't think this psalm is linear in the sense of start with a problem, note, remember what you know about God, and then live happily ever after. If you like, he's got these two voices running through at the same time. The voice of his experience, if you like, listening to himself. And then alongside that, the voice from his head, if you like, speaking truth to his heart. So you get that, really. Just, just one or two examples. So verse 3, his experience is so low that he's now in tears. My tears have been my food. And yet he can say in the same breath almost that 43 verse 4, that God is his exceeding joy. Tears and joy simultaneously. Or verse 7, his, his experience is that he's overwhelmed, he's swamped. And yet somehow he holds on to the truth that this is God's doing because they're God's breakers. Your breakers, Lord. Verse 5 is in turmoil, and yet he knows that God is his rock. That's his life. And it's a description of life, I guess, that all of us will be familiar with. Perhaps we've never felt as low as he is, but all of us, whoever we are, we are living in a fallen world where things are not okay. We live daily and all through the day with sickness, illness, injustice, pain, sadness. And yet alongside those sorrows of living in this world, we also have the wonderful truths of the gospel to hold on to. We've had tears, yes, but in the middle of our tears, actually we know that God is our joy, ultimately. We've all felt overwhelmed at some point by something, and yet, hey, we're still here. Why is that? Well, because God is our rock. And here's the second thing to learn from this man. As we go through the pains of this life, we're to keep reminding ourselves of these truths about God. So that's his life. He's a cast down soul and he's holding on to truths. But that's not the end of the story because secondly, 
we look at the psalmist's hope. As we've picked up a couple of times already, three times the psalmist tells himself to hope in God. It's those three verses that are repeated. So it's verse 5, and it's verse 11, and then it's 43, verse 5. And notice he knows exactly where to put his hope. And this isn't just a vague hope. Oh, I hope things are going to be better tomorrow. Things are pretty bad now, but I hope things will be a bit better next time. No, it's hope in God. The psalmist has confidence that his current life was not all that there was ever going to be. Because God is his salvation, he knew that one day he would be praising God again. Now, did he mean back in Jerusalem in his earthly life, or was he looking a bit further ahead? Hmm, not sure. And that's where we've got the advantage. You see, we can look back where he could only vaguely look forward. We can look back and we can see why God's people who are currently suffering and are struggling and who are down will one day be able to praise him. And it's because of what Jesus has done for his people. Oh, here's a question. Do we think that when Jesus went to the synagogue or the temple and this psalm, these psalms were the psalms for the day, do we think that Jesus sung them? Or do we think that Jesus as I'm doing here, stood there with his arms folded, looked across at old Ebenezer, who's got some problems, and thinks, well, this one isn't for me. This one's for him. What about when they got down to verse 3? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Did Jesus sing that one? Same again, verse 10, when the enemies taunt my adversaries taunt me. They say to me continually, where is your God? Fast forward about a thousand years. On the cross, there is a man being taunted by his enemies. And they ask him, well, he trusted in God. Let God deliver him. Where is your God? Is what they're saying. What about verse 5? Would Jesus have said this? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hmm. Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Apparently, the word translated cast down in Psalm 42 is the word, the same word that Jesus uses in the garden. What about when they got to verse 9? Would Jesus have said that one, do you think? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And words, aren't they? They're almost identical to those that cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or 43 verse 4. Would Jesus have said that one? Then I'll go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What's going on? What's going on is that in this psalm, or this psalm, it points us forward to Jesus. 
and what Jesus would do for his people. It points us forward to how Jesus would fulfill the promise that God made to his people through the prophets. Around 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah looked ahead to a servant of the Lord who would come. And these verses from Isaiah chapter 53 tell us what God's servant would do when he came. So, Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. When we read those verses, I suspect our focus normally, naturally, is on verse 5. That's where we put our focus, isn't it? How Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, our sins, and, and takes our sin away. But I wonder if we've got the force of verse 4. Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Alec Matea wrote a commentary on Isaiah, and he comments on this verse. With neither cooperation nor understanding from us, the servant took on himself all that blights our lives. We long for a truly happy life, but we're constantly balked by sorrow in whatever form it may come. Disappointment, bereavement, tragedy, whatever. But here we go. But he made our burdens his. How does that help? How does that help when even today I'm struggling with grief? Whatever my burden is. It helps hugely. Because Jesus has taken our sorrows, it means we can bring our sorrows to him. What happens when we do that? Uh, I think John pointed us to uh, Spurgeon last week. Well, Spurgeon's getting another outing this week. But Spurgeon wrote a commentary on Psalm 42. And I've got a quote up there. Did Jesus ever feel like this, like, like the man in Psalm 42? The thought that Christ is affected by my particular trial is inexpressibly delightful. When the Holy Spirit brings this home to my soul, we bless the Savior's name because he did not merely carry our sins in his own body on the tree. He also bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus was not merely a substitute, which is the greatest of all consolations, but he's also affected by my trial. Jesus suffers with you and in you. You are a member of his body and he supports you. Look into his face by faith and be assured that he's not hard or without pity. Jesus feels what we feel. How does it help? It's another incentive, isn't it, to pray as we bring our sorrows to Jesus without pretending. What do we find? We find a man of sorrows acquainted with grief who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows what we're going through, and he knows and he cares, even if no one else seems to. And finally, because knowing Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that's going to help me here and now, because it tells me that it will not always be like this. 
Because of Jesus, sorrows and griefs will one day be no more. They're with us now, but one day won't be. The logic is this. Go back to our sin. Jesus took our sin. We know that. Sin is still with us. One day it won't be. Jesus bore our griefs and sorrows. Griefs and sorrows are still with us. But one day they won't be. One day, just as one day sin will not dog me or haunt me, one day's sorrows will not dog me or haunt me. One day, with the psalmist, if I'm trusting Jesus, I will be praising my salvation and my God with no more mourning, no more crying, or no more pain. That is something to look forward to. Moment of quiet as we sit and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you that, like the psalmist, we don't need to pretend before you. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what he came to do. And our prayer is that we might understand more and more what he has done for us. And we ask it for his sake. Amen.